This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. So, the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. As winter approaches, we thought we'd have a look at some poems about winter. And Kathleen McMahon, Irish author, will be in to rise to the toaster challenge. And she'll also be talking about her new novel, Nothing But Blue Sky, which was published just this year by Sandy Cove, an imprint of Penguin Books. Looking forward to that. This is a poem called Lines for Winter, as by Mark Strand. Lines for Winter. Tell yourself, as it gets cold and grey falls from the air, that you will go on walking, hearing the same tune, no matter where you find yourself, inside the dome of dark or under the crackling white of the moon's gaze in a valley of snow. Tonight, as it gets cold, tell yourself what you know, which is nothing but the tune your bones play as you keep going. And you will be able for once to lie down under the small fire of winter stars. And if it happens that you cannot go on or turn back, and you find yourself where you will be at the end, tell yourself in that final flowing of cold through your limbs that you love what you are. Snow by Louis McNeese. The room was suddenly rich and the great bay window was spawning snow and pink roses against it, soundlessly collateral and incompatible. World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. I peel and portion a tangerine and spit the pips and feel the drunkenness of things being various. And the fire flames with a bubbling sound for world is more spiteful and gay than one supposes. On the tongue, on the eyes, on the ears, in the palms of one's hands, there is more than glass between the snow and the huge roses. That was John O'Donnell reading Lines for Winter by Mark Strand and Gene O'Brien reading Snow by Louis McNeese. It may not be quite winter yet, but we thought we'd prepare at least psychically for the season by featuring some wintry poems to get us in the mood. What's the attraction of winter for poets, you might think? The death of the year, nature bedding down, bare trees, snow, shorter days, darkness, cold, a realm of imagination, reflection. Maybe also winter festivals, festivals of light, rebirth, Samhain, Saturnalia, Christmas. Boundaries between this and the next world thinning. So it's a promising season for poetry and poets have always responded to it. You could sense that in the opening two poems. And uh, do you have a winter poem you'd like to share with us? Yes, Peter, I'm going to read a poem called Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. And Robert Hayden was a poet who lived between 1913 and 1980. And the reason I'm saying that is because I think the poem really gives a very strong sense of the early 1920s when Robert Hayden was a young poet and a very strong sense of his father as well. And in particular, listen out for the final lines, which are, I think, extremely beautiful. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early 
and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well, what did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? What a stunning poem that is. My first choice is two short poems, both by women poets, who, who I think deserve to be better known. One is Small Cold Poem by Sadie Purcell, who died in 1998. All that night fell splinters of ice, wounding the gardens, and our warm bodies clung together, greedy, not heeding the cold. But when we woke, I found my heart stuck full of them and freezing like a painted Baroque martyr. And the other one I've chosen is by Linda Gregg, and it's called Winter Love. I would like to decorate this silence, but my house grows only cleaner and more plain. The glass chimes I hung over the register ring a little when the heat goes on. I waited too long to drink my tea. It was not hot. It was only warm. Well, I'm feeling really wintry listening to all those poems. They're really beautiful to hear. And at this point, I really want to say as well, well, Peter and I both want to say thank you so much to the poets who responded really, I have to say, quite instantly to the idea of recording for us a favourite winter poem of theirs. And the choices that came in were really beautiful. I was delighted, actually, to see that Mark Granier, the poet Mark Granier, had chosen one of my favourite winter poems, which involves a hare and a man and an enormous sense of loss, an aching sense of loss, which becomes apparent in the last last lines. And I don't want to destroy this poem and I, I want to thank Mark and all the poets for the wonderful recordings. But here's Mark Granier with a poem by Czeslaw Miwash. Encounter by Czeslaw Miwash. We were riding through frozen fields in a wagon at dawn. A red wing rose in the darkness, and suddenly a hare ran across the road. One of us pointed to it with his hand. That was long ago. Today neither of them is alive, not the hare nor the man who made the gesture. Oh, my love, where are they? Where are they going? The flash of a hand, streak of movement, rustle of pebbles. I ask not out of sorrow, but in wonder. Oh, my love, where are they gone? They're such beautiful lines, aren't they, Peter? Yeah, no, it's a great poem. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Well, listen, I'd love to read another poem, if I may. Am I? Can I read another poem, Peter? Yeah, of course. It's by a poet that I, I really love, Denise Levertov. I know you're a fan of her as well, aren't you, Peter? Oh, yeah, I love her work, yeah. Yeah, she's a fantastic poet. I mean, a lot of people think she's American, but she actually grew up in England. And I was reading recently actually about her that when she was 12 or 13, she actually wrote a letter to T.S. Eliot, which is giving some sense of her of of the age and the time in which she wrote. And as a young teenager, he actually responded and he gave her great advice. And she was taught by her mother, actually. And then later when she got married, she moved to America and she was kind of linked with the 
Black Mountain poets as well. Poets like Robert Creeley is such a really fine, I think a natural poet as well. And this poem is called February Evening in New York. Um, I suppose we're all kind of cooped up and I was thinking of New York the other day and I thought of Denise Levertov and I just love the sense of movement in this and this feeling that you're there in New York on a wintry, wintry, in a wintry time. So here we go. February Evening in New York by Denise Levertov. As the stores close, a winter light opens air to iris blue, glint of frost through the smoke, grains of mica, salt of the sidewalk. As the buildings close, released autonomous feet pattern in the streets in hurry and stroll, balloon heads drift and dive above them, the bodies aren't really there. As the lights brighten, as the sky darkens, a woman with crooked heels says to another woman, while they step along at a fair pace, you know, I'm telling you what I love best is life. I love life. Even if I ever get to be old and wheezy or limp, you know, limping along, I'd still out of hearing. To the multiple disordered tones of gears changing, a dance to the compass points out four-way river, prospect of sky wedged into avenues, left at the end of streets, west sky, east sky, more life tonight, a range of open time at winter's outskirts. Thanks for that fine poem. And uh, and by way of total contrast, I'm going to move things to the east a bit. Uh, I'm going to go back to Tang, China in the 8th, kind of ninth century, and a poem called River Snow by Li Chung Yuan. A thousand mountains, no birds fly. Ten thousand paths, no footprints. Lone skiff, rush-cloaked old man, fishing alone, cold river snow. And the second tiny little poem is by the Japanese poet Yosa Busan. It's a little haiku. Mistaking the season, the dandelion is blooming in the frost on the road. Yeah, that was beautiful, Peter. And actually, I have a very short poem as well here, which, I mean, is anonymous, but it dates back to the time of Henry VIII. And Peter, I'm going to ask you, can you guess what it is? A cold poem with rain pouring down, written by somebody we do not know who, and put to music. Yes, I think I know the one. It begins Western Wind, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think well done, Peter Sir, there for guessing that. I think it's one of the most beautiful love poems ever written. I love that it's anonymous. We don't know where it came from, um, who wrote it. And um, it's just, it's strangely joyous as well, even though it's very cold and wet when you hear it. Western wind, when wilt thou blow? The small rain down can rain. Christ, if my love were in my arms and I in my bed again. I mean, sometimes the most striking poems are often the ones we are, that are just completely anonymous. We don't know who wrote them, but they're just these kind of things that arose and, be, um, and embedded themselves in the tradition totally unforgettably. One of the kind of more unexpected poems that came in was, it's a great poem, it's by... Robert Graves, and it's uh, to Juan at the winter solstice. And it's a very majestic and typically Graves poem. And here is Sean reading it. Robert Graves, to Juan at the winter solstice. There is one story and one story only that will prove worth your telling, whether as learned bard or gifted child. To it, all lines, 
or lesser gods belong that startle with their shining such common stories as they stray into? Is it of trees you tell, their months and virtues, of strange beasts that beset you, of birds that croak at you the triple will, or of the zodiac and how slow it turns below the boreal crown, prison of all true kings that ever reigned? Water to water, arc again to arc, from woman back to woman, so each new victim treads unfalteringly the never-altered circuit of his fate, bringing twelve peers as witness both to his starry rise and starry fall. Or is it of the virgin silver beauty, all fish below the thighs? She in her left hand bears a leafy quince, when with her right she crooks a finger, smiling, how may the king hold back? Royally, then, he barters life for love. Or of the undying snake from chaos hatched, whose coils contain the ocean, into whose chops with naked sword he springs, then in black water tangled by the reeds, battles three days and nights to be spewed up beside her scalloped shore. Much snow is falling, winds roar hollowly, the owl hoots from the elder. Fear in your heart cries to the loving cup, sorrow to sorrow as the sparks fly upward. The log groans and confesses there is one story and one story only. Dwell on her graciousness, dwell on her smiling. Do not forget what flowers the great boar trampled down in ivy time. Her brow was creamy as the long ninth wave. Her sea-blue eyes were wild, but nothing promised that is not performed. And that was To Joanne at the Winter Solstice, a beautiful poem by Robert Graves, read very beautifully, I have to say as well, by Sean Lysa. Thanks, Sean, for, for reading that for us. Well, Peter, we're moving on now, I think, to our final poem in our short series of winter poems. And it's a poem which is chosen by the poet Jane Clark. She has chosen a really fine poem, I think, by the Welsh poet Gillian Clark. Actually, she's a poet that uh, both you and I really admire and like so much. Isn't that right, Peter? I remember meeting her years ago, actually, down in the Strokestown Poetry Festival when you were directing it. Yeah, and I remember also once actually uh, going to record her um, because I did an interview with her for Poetry Ireland Review. And I remember I was only a young poet at the time and I ended up in her hotel bedroom and she was telling me stories about becoming a poet, one of which I'll always remember, which was when she was a young mother and she really didn't have any faith in herself as a poet. Um, She wrote a poem and she scrunched it up and threw it away. And her husband, um, I think her, her husband, she said, came in and he read the poem and he ironed it and he sent it off to Poetry Wales and Poetry Wales accepted it. And that was the beginning of Gillian Clark's career as a poet, which is, I think, gives encouragement to lots of younger poets or poets starting out. Anyway, we're, we're going to put on this poem. And, and Peter, you like it a lot, this poem, Glacier, by Gillian Clark, don't you? Yeah, I was very glad that Jane Clark sent this poem in. It's very interesting. I mean, it's a poem that's written, uh, I think, a while ago, I mean, at least 10 years ago, but it's, it's a poem about the melting of, a, of the glaciers in, in, in the Arctic. And you know, she's, you know what a terrible kind of tragedy that that is. And it's as if she—it might have been written yesterday. It's so topical, 
and she kind of it, it mixes in her in her mind with the terrible tragedy of the slag heap collapsing on the school in Aberfan all those years ago when the, when the children were crushed. Mm-hmm. So the two things come together. So it's a, but it's a, you know it's a great poem and Jane reads it very well and here it is. Glacier by Gillian Clark. The miles deep Greenland glaciers lost its grip, sliding nine miles a year towards the sea on its own meltwater. As, 40 years ago, the slag heap, loosened by a slip of rain-swollen mountain stream, suddenly gave with a roar, taking a primary school, crushing the children. The century of waste has burned a hole in the sky over the pole. Oh, science, with your tricks and alchemies, Chain the glacier with sun and wind and tide. Rebuild the gates of ice. Halt, melt and slide. Freeze the seas. Stay the flow and the flux for footfall of polar bear and arctic fox. And thanks, Jane Clark, for reading that really, really wonderful poem by Gillian Clark called Glacier. And indeed, thank you to all the poets who rose to the challenge of uh, finding their favourite winter poem and reading them for us on today's episode of Books for Breakfast. The poets were John O'Donnell, Jean O'Brien, Mark Granier, Sean Lysett, and Jane Clark and of course Peter and I myself threw in a few poems that we loved as well but I hope you enjoyed them and I hope it set us off on our winter journey which after all that is what poems do they take us on the most mysterious and marvellous of journeys and details of the poets and the poems that they read will be as usual available on our website www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com and thanks for listening What happened to her is not something that happens to a Mary Rose. A Mary Rose is destined to have a large family and work without complaint until retirement at the job she loves, steering newborn babies through their travails the way a ship's captain steers his crew through a storm. A Mary Rose wears a hat to her daughter's wedding and brings up the gifts and is called upon to dance with the groom. A Mary Rose lives to see varicose veins appear on the backs of her slim, girlish legs as her upper arms thicken and she's forced to throw out all the clothes she has no hope of ever fitting into again. In the years that follow, she's comforted by the suntan that begins to last from year to year as the skin of her chest cures in the sun like a leather handbag and her hands accumulate age spots where once she had freckles. A Mary Rose lives to become a very old lady surrounded by children and grandchildren and perhaps even a handful of great-grandchildren. And a party is held for her 90th birthday because she's so precious to them all. And Elaine might die of a romantic malady. I imagine an Elaine drowning in a river or locking herself away in a convent. A Rebecca could be murdered by her own husband, most likely, and their wedding photograph would be published in all the papers and everyone would say that he had the look of a murderer even then. A Hillary could almost be president, but not quite. A Christine might be jailed for fraud or espionage, but a Mary Rose is destined to live a long and uneventful life. At least that's how it seems to me. I can find nothing in her past, not a single thing, that could in any way have prepared me for what the future had in store for her. 
Oh, fantastic. And that was Kathleen McMahon. Just what was in store for her reading an excerpt from her new novel, Nothing But Blue Sky, published by Sandy Cove, an imprint of Penguin Books. Kathleen McMahon is a writer and journalist. Her first novel, This Is How It Ends, caused quite a media sensation at the London Book Fair in 2011 when it was bought by the Little Brown Book Group in the UK and Grand Central Publishing in the US. The book was translated into more than 20 languages. It spent five weeks at the top of the bestseller lists in Ireland and it was Richard and Judy Book Club Choice in the UK. It also was shortlisted for the Kerry Group Irish Book of the Year Award, as well as two Board Gash Energy Irish Book Awards and was chosen by the public as runner-up in the RTE Liveline Listeners Poll for Book of the Year 2012. And of it, The Guardian wrote, It's impossible to look away from this love story. It is unexpectedly quirky, grown-up, but pleasingly whimsical. Then came along her second novel, The Long Hot Summer, It was published also to much acclaim in Ireland and the UK in 2015. And this was a book which delved into the centre of the dysfunctional McEntee family. Kathleen McMahon is a former radio and television journalist and she lives in Dublin with her husband and twin daughters. Her third and most recent novel, Nothing But Blue Sky, which we just heard from there, is published this year and is the first of her books to be published by Penguin under their new imprint, Sandy Cove Books. So congratulations, Kathleen, on your new novel and welcome to Books for Breakfast. Thanks so much. It was a delight to read from it. I was just thinking it's the first time I've had a chance to read from the book, even though it's out six months, but such are the restrictions placed on us. And anyway, it's lovely to read. It's something you miss is reading from your own work. It's nice. Yeah, and it was so nice for Peter and I to listen as well there to it. I could see Peter smirking away at parts of it. It's lovely to have a novel which has humour in it as well. So Kathleen, I'm glad you're here. And let's start at the beginning, I suppose. Your journey as a published writer began back in 2011 with a much publicised advance from Sphere at the London Book Fair for your first, first book, The Love Story, This Is How It Ends. And I'm sure that was hugely exciting for you. But you're no stranger at all to the writing world. Your own background is journalism and broadcasting, as I said earlier. And you're the granddaughter of the writer Mary Lavin. And your aunt was Carolyn Walsh, former literary editor of the Irish Times. But I suppose we can all have backgrounds. People can have backgrounds and they may decide to go in a different path. But you did go on the path of writing. And I'm just wondering, had you always been writing fiction? How did your own journey start as a writer? Was it in childhood or did you get the urge later on to to get writing and producing novels? Definitely in childhood. I mean, I I wrote a a full novel when I was 10 with my friend Penelope McGrath in Pembroke School, uh, heavily influenced by uh, the novels of Enid Blyton, I suspect. Uh, We we illustrated it and everything. I remember just Mm, the pleasure of sitting at break times and lunch times and much (laughs) the infuriation of everybody else in our class who wanted us to go out and mess around in the yard. It must have been really annoying. Um, But we sat and and wrote this novel. Yeah, so I think definitely from childhood. Now, I don't know whether that's because I looked around me and saw that other people in my family were doing this. But storytelling or, you know, I remember even that really simple experience. I think I describe it in The Long Hot Summer with the character of Macdara, who becomes a writer, that as for as long as he can remember, he has had that instinct to put what he's seeing into words. I remember sitting in the car and looking out the window at trees and finding words for them and constructing a narrative. Now, maybe everybody does that. I don't know. But I've definitely done that all my life and started putting it down on paper so I've always written, I, it, I absolutely had an incredibly long journey to putting my work out there. 
I think because of my family, because I found it terrifying and I knew that there was a standard that had to be met before I could even think about putting it out there. But I think in a way that's a good thing. And I think it made me a very strict judge of my own work. And I did write a lot. I wrote snippets, fragments, stories, and I always knew they weren't good enough to put out there. Now, you can call that fear or maybe it was an accurate judgment. I think once I came to write my first novel, which wasn't actually published, but did kind of set me on this road in that it got me an agent. I think that was the first time, and I was nearly 40 by then, I think I read it and thought, yes, I think now I have something that is strong enough and coherent enough to put out there. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting how different writers come at it at different times in their life. One of my favourite writers is Penelope Fitzgerald, and she started writing in her 50s. So I, I think it's amazing that but that you began so early and yet you realised it was an apprenticeship. I think oftentimes we are our own critic and we don't realise it, you know, because you knew it wasn't good enough and you kept working at it. It's, it's so interesting to hear that. And there may be an element that women, I, this, this is, I, I need to give this more time. I, it's one of, it's one of my, <laughs> yeah. my cooked up theories that I haven't put enough research into. But I think often women's tra- career trajectory as writers skews that way towards later in life. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. there's a lovely, wonderful, exuberant confidence in young men which allows them to put their work out quicker, I think, if you if you observe. And I think women will tend to take a lot longer to weigh up their own strengths and and muster the courage to put it out there. But in a way, it gives us great longevity because then you, you a lot of women keep writing very strong fiction right into their into old age. Yeah, that's true. And it's this buildup of experience as well. The writer, C.S. Lewis, just to continue on my questioning here, because I want to get talking about your new book. I love, oh, I've always loved his quote when he said, those of us left behind after somebody dies are the club of the leftover living. And it always strikes me as really quite true. And your new novel addresses this idea of coping in the aftermath of a death. And in the case of David, the character in your book, what do you do when a 20 year marriage ends because of your wife's kind of shocking death? And how does someone like him get on with his life without Mary Rose? So how do we move forward? And I know it's it's probably way too early. It's only breakfast time to be asking you about this, Kathleen. But is death, do you think, a learning curve, do you think, for people in helping them to move on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really lovely quote from C.S. Lewis. I hadn't heard it before. I think this idea was percolating in my mind over a couple of years because I have had several close friends who died, several family members, my mum, my aunt, and a tragedy in particular, one that's quite dramatic, creates such almost outsized importance for the life of the person who died. Uh, I remember hearing an interview with Pierce Brosnan on the radio as these ideas were going, mm-hmm. and he was asked about his first wife who had died of cancer. And he really, really nicely and really politely said, well, that was a long time ago, and mm-hmm. I have my God-given life to lead. And I found that so fascinating, so brave of him to say so, actually. That mm. the person who dies and the more dramatic the circumstances, mm. the more mm. this applies, takes on this colossal importance, almost becomes this sh- shadow that casts uh, it, it, way beyond its own height. And I thought that was unfair, really. So it was interesting mm. to me to give that importance to the person left behind, whose life is of equal importance. And yes, the challenge of living it yeah. and going forward is so immense, as anyone who's experienced grief knows, you know, at what point do you start to have normal patches in your day, have a normal hour, have a normal two hours, 
So how do you start to live again? And really just in increments like that, I think, where, you know, it dominates all the day first. And then six months later, a year later, there may be an hour when you're free of it or almost free of it. And I I was I wanted to follow that that process for David and see how he would almost allow her death and his marriage with her assume a normal perspective again in his life rather than continue to block out everything. Yeah, well, I think he certainly achieved that. And also, I love the idea in the book that, well, we, as we all know, anyone who is married, all marriages are mysterious. And, and you acknowledge this and you haven't written the book in a kind of linear fashion. You write it backwards from the end to the beginning of the marriage. And I was struck by one character actually saying we live life forwards and we learn it backwards. I thought this again was quite poignant and it was very accurate. And I was just wondering, Structuring the novel, I mean, you were speaking earlier about becoming a writer, but structuring it, did this structure help you to kind of unravel the intricacies of the marriage? Because really, I felt reading it, it's only by the marriage ending that David really gets to understand it. Is that what you intended? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that line that you quoted to me is the central line of the novel and and probably of everything I do, of all my work. I mean, it's maybe put slightly more poetically in the novel, but I mean, basically in my life, I find I'm an incredibly slow learner. It amazes me. I'm 50 now at how how long it takes the penny to drop about really basic things and all the things you don't see in other people. You know, our, our vision of each other, especially in a marriage maybe, which is such a close, you live at such close quarters to each other. And yet your vision is always obscured by what's happening to you, emotions, where the other person's at. So I do think what you see is very imperfect and only it's always seen refracted and imperfectly and partially. And so as you go on, I mean, I always think that the story of a marriage is never told until the very end, you know, or the jury's always out on it. You, When will you ever be able to weigh up who this person was to you mm-hmm. and what you were to them and how much of each other's lives you knew? Mm-hmm. And for David in this book, I think it's very much, as you say, it's only when she's gone that in a way, he's, some some of the things about their marriage, he doesn't even start to think about until she's gone. And start to understand what he was to her and what she was to him in a much clearer way than he could when she was alive. I, I definitely think that, that you, you actually got, you nailed that, Catherine. So well done. And you write the novel in the voice of David, the husband. And it's fair to say, I think, I, I felt as a reader anyway, he's quite tricky. He, he has a difficult family background. He's got set views on things. And I think this gave a great edge to the book. I really liked it as a reader because I think there's nothing more boring than affability in a character. So I was wondering, was it hard to enter the male voice or did you enjoy it? I didn't really think about it, to be honest with you. I really didn't give it any thought. I knew it was going to be narrated by him. So I didn't really think about him being male or female. I I did maybe at some points when I went on, when I thought about how male he is. And I think there's a bit in the book where I describe, I mean, I worked as a journalist and a lot of my male colleagues were definitely much more womanly in their interest. These are the guys who were all good at English in school. You know, they were much more womanly in their interest in people and than, than some of the, the other men I knew. So that to me was where David is in terms of his maleness. And so I, ne- I never really had to think very hard about mm-hmm. him being male, except once I, I think, and, and we come to it later in the novel, and maybe this is unfair, but I felt that because he is a man who hasn't had children, that there would be things that he hadn't seen about his marriage and about life that would only occur to him afterwards. 
And so maybe I unfairly ascribed limitations to his perspective because of that. But as a woman, and there's a character in Deborah in the novel who's his great friend, and she kind of shakes him and wakes him up to things that she feels he hasn't seen. So, yeah, I mean, his his unpleasant opinions were great fun for me because, yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, you know, characters are all meant to be nice now. Everybody's meant to be nice and likable. And, you know, David isn't terribly likable, but I have great sympathy for some of his unpleasant opinions. But we all know people who have nasty opinions. It doesn't make you a nasty person. And, yeah, I had fun with that. I had really good fun with that. Okay, great. And the other thing I enjoyed about the novel was the sense of place. It was nearly an added character to it. It's it's set on the coast of Catalonia and it's a place that I think you know well, is it? Yeah, we've holidayed there for years since our kids were small. And, you know, I was a great traveller when I was in my youth. And it's only once I got married and had kids that we started going back to the same place every year, which I'd never really done before. Yeah. And... That was there for a long time in my mind as something that would be really interesting to use for a novel because your life and the timeline of your life is measured against going back to this place every year. And it's something I'd noticed in my life that, you know, we can look through our photo album. There's the year the girls were three and there's the year they were four. And there's the year your mum died or there's the year you changed your job. And so for a novelist, that provides a really interesting structure that it can and take also you, place. You, you, you referenced the politics of the place as well. I mean, was that was that important to you to just, you don't go over the top on it, but there are mentions of it. And yeah, do you, do you want to say a little bit about that? Or? Yeah, it's just something I've noticed over the years. I mean, I, 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 I've been travelling to Spain all, all my life and I speak some Spanish and Catalonia in particular is the place that we had settled on to go on holidays. I spent time in Barcelona and that's just something I've observed over the mm. years. I mean, the rise of Catalan nationalism. And in the book, I ascribe these feelings to David, but I suppose I would feel ambiguous as well about it. And I've observed it. It's made me nervous over the years. And I think particularly for an Irish person who's maybe uh, has conflicting emotions about seeing flags proliferating and, you know, that kind of totemic nationalism makes me nervous as it makes the character of David nervous in the novel. And yeah, it was just something that I thought had a place in the book. And, you know, the book, I think there is a connection between the, the 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 personal story in the book of David and his loss of his wife and the backdrop. For me in my novels, I'm always looking at the backdrop, even if, as you say, it occupies very little word count. But for me, the backdrop was very important in that you had these changes happening over 20 years, increasing nationalism in Catalonia, Brexit, Trump, and that the the sense that the world is losing a logic that there's something strange happening here particularly with Brexit and Trump to me was an interesting backdrop backdrop to have against the personal story for David which is something that makes no sense happens I know but I thought again Kathleen it added a, a strength to the novel and it was interesting to me as a reader and then without giving away too much the story does conclude in there's a natural feeling to the conclusion and it his life begins to slowly mend and, you know, I suppose as a novelist, you had a choice to to end it in one way or the other. And were you happy with that conclusion? And I'm trying my best not to give away anything away there, Kathleen. Yeah, definitely. I tend to know the last paragraph of a novel before I even start it. So in this case, I did know exactly how this would end. And I tend to have a very cinematic view of the last scene and for anybody who hasn't read it yet, we won't give anything away. But the last scene is very cinematic and I tend to 
pull back from any kind of commentary at the end and just give a picture of what's happening. And I always knew I had that picture in mind of what would happen and how that the fact that his life would go on to me would be both joyous because it is joyous that life goes on, but also desperately sad because, of course, hers hasn't. Yeah. And he's leaving behind something. I thought that was perfectly achieved. I like that idea that you're working towards something and you're going to get there. And you did get there, Kathleen. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed listening to you there talking about your book, Nothing But Blue Sky. And I think, Kathleen, actually, it's time to move on to the toaster challenge now. I think we've we've given listeners... no. I'm scared I've been practicing this. <laughs> oh, no. Well, the toast, the toast might burn today as well, but we, we, we won't mind. Peter, now, have you got the bread ready there? So we're ready to go, Kathleen. And you're going to tell us in three minutes, no pressure, about a book that, about, about a book that you really have loved. Okay, off you go, Kathleen. Okay, hit the stopwatch. Okay, the book I've chosen is called The Spare Room, and it's by an Australian writer called Helen Garner. And the reason I love this book, well, actually, I'm in awe of this book, is it, it's just so good. It's narrated by a middle-aged woman called Helen, and Helen lives in Melbourne. And the book starts with her preparing the spare room that's mentioned in the title for a visit from an old friend who lives in Sydney. And her friend is Nicola, a tall, patrician, bohemian woman. She's described as a duchess in exile. She's also got stage four cancer. And Nicola has come to Sydney for a course of alternative treatment. And the novel is the story of the three weeks, basically, that Nicola spends in Helen's spare room while she's undergoing this treatment. And this becomes an incredibly grueling experience for Helen, who is caring for somebody who is essentially dying. But also it's a horrendous emotional experience for her because her friend has put her faith in a bunch of charlatans, essentially. It's a really tough story. And and what struck me so much was Garner's way of telling it is really ferocious. She's so honest about the anger she feels towards her friend. At one stage, she's so angry with Nicola that she says she longs for an Uzi. And Nicola is really selfish in her determination to fight for life, very understandably. But it leaves Helen in this knot of pity and love and rage, which is at the core of the novel. And she has this dilemma, which is if she calls out the treatment Nicola has put her faith in for nonsense, she's essentially telling Nicola to lay down her weapons and prepare to die. So she's left with this awful decision. Does she do this? And, you know, it's a really bleak topic for a novel. Obviously, I'm a great woman for the uh, for the bleak topics. But the novel isn't bleak. And Dun, uh, Garner is such a beautiful writer. Her descriptions are beautiful. There's a little granddaughter who comes in in a flamenco costume with her hands all calloused from the monkey bars at the school. And there's the sound of the oil dropping and clicking in the heater in Nicola's bedroom. And those descriptions are written with such economy that it's really stunning. Um, it may be no accident that she's Australian because uh, it's such a hard thing to lay it out like it is. And uh, she does such an amazing job of that, um, which is why I've chosen to recommend it. I think this novel reminded me why we write novels and why we read them. There's always some new truth. And if somebody like Helen Garner does it this well, it opens up something inside of us that we didn't see or something we didn't dare to tell. And for that reason, I would urge everybody to read The Spare Room by Helen Garner. Kathleen McMahon, that was brilliant. You have actually come in just on time. Congratulations. <laughs> How's the toast? I think, I think it's, it's, it's okay, Peter. I think it is. I think it is. So thank you, uh, Kathleen, for talking about The Spare Room by Helen Garner, published by Canongate. Actually, 
I was delighted that you chose this book because I remember living in Australia way back in the 80s. I'm giving away my age now when I was very young. And of course, I loved reading and writing. And I was encountering writers like Elizabeth Jolie and Les Murray. And then I came across this writer, Helen Garner, and she'd written a book called Monkey Grip. And it was causing total um, reaction in Australia because, as you said, she is such a brutally honest writer. And in that book, she wrote she was living in a house with friends and she wrote about their life and they were all like really disgusted. <laughs> but then after, because it became such a success, they thought, oh, well, maybe we should be delighted that we're in this best-selling novel. But I do think she kind of writes a veiled memoir, doesn't she, Kathleen? Um, well, she doesn't even change her name in this yeah, book. I, I mean, the character, the narrator is called Helen. She's a badass. I mean, it, it, it's such a tough thing to write about. I mean, you know, uh, the, the the description of the friend, how afraid she is of her will to live. And, you know, the friend is quite magnificent, um, but her anger with her and, you know, she describes, you know, how when the friend is talking about how the cancer is on the run, how she couldn't meet her eye. I just think it's an incredibly brave thing to choose as a topic for a novel. And, you know, lest people listening think it's desperately bleak. There's loads of love in this book. The character of Nicola is is wonderful character and you see glimpses of her before she was sick and you see glimpses of the person she still is, even though she's sick. And it's a very tender book, really, I think. Uh, so she manages to, I think Garner manages in an amazing way to be as tough as nails and also really tender, mm. which is quite something to pull off. That is amazing to achieve that. And also you were recommended this, are you, by another writer, isn't that right? And I think it's brilliant when writers recommend books because there is a reason why this writer, who, who was it again, Kathleen, who recommended it to you? Yeah, it was the, the, the English writer, David Nicholl, whose uh, most recent book is Sweet Sorrow. He wrote Us, which was just on TV recently. And he's a great champion for her to have because he's incredibly generous about promoting other writers' work. But I just saw him tweet about this book and I was fascinated because, I mean, it was published in the UK in 2008. So I'm talking about a 12-year-old book. I hadn't heard of it. I dug it out and read it. And it seemed to me just such a good example of, you know, there's so much sound and fury around promotions in the book world and prizes and book tours and new novels and debut novels. And really what it comes down to in terms of the long-term life of a book is that kind of word of mouth championing. And I love that. Um, and it doesn't have to be writers promotion, it can be readers. I mean, most of my favourite books, uh, Amy Bloom last year, White Houses, I don't know if you've read that, but that came to, that was my favourite book that I read last year. And again, came to me just uh, on a recommendation of a friend. Um, so I love that there is that lifeblood for books by readers, uh, provided by readers, which is wonderful. The other thing I love about this book is that it's short. It's less than 200 pages. And um, I mean, it's it's really hard to write a complete novel in 200 pages. I used to think I'd love to write a really good book. And now actually my ambition <laughs> is to write a really short one. A really good um, short one. Yeah. I mean, uh, what an achievement. It sounds amazing. She's packed so much into it by the sounds of it. Yeah, because she can say in one sentence what it would take somebody else a paragraph to say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the economy here is amazing. Yeah. And the characters are so, uh, there's lots of, I, I mentioned the granddaughter. There's a psychiatrist friend who has triangular eyes, she describes. And he comes across as an absolutely fully rounded character, even though he only appears very briefly and the yeah. dialogue is incredibly short. But she, what she does, she just does with such precision that she doesn't need yeah. to do any more. 
Yeah, and he stays with you as a character. So Kathleen, listen, I'm going to definitely thank you for recommending that book, The Spare Room by Helen Garner. I'm bursting to read it, actually, published by Canongate. 2009, as you say, I mean, it is amazing. A good book doesn't really die. It gets passed on and recommended by friends or you might read a review and you're thinking, I want to read that. So and we'd also like to thank Kathleen for coming in, of course, today and talking about Nothing But Blue Sky, which was published by Sandy Cove just this year, an imprint of Penguin Books. Maeve Binchy, I read, said of your writing that you write with a confidence, ease and unerring sense of timing. Uh, that sounds absolutely perfect, Kathleen. What a great, a great endorsement from the wonderful Maeve Binchy. So I would definitely urge all our listeners to also read Kathleen's new novel and go get a copy of The Spare Room. It sounds brilliant and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Kathleen McMahon, for coming in to Books for Breakfast. And as usual, all details of both books will be available on Books for Breakfast. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks so much for having me. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to Books for Breakfast buzzsprout.com and yeah so we'll be back again next Thursday morning we'll have the toast on we'll have the kettle boiling we will have more books to discuss and we're looking forward to having you here so goodbye everybody goodbye goodbye